Good evening, everyone. Good evening. I'm very happy to uh, celebrate uh, Lectio Divina this evening here in this parish community. As Father uh, Curtis mentioned, uh, I've been doing this now for, I think, about 16 years, um, usually in the cathedral, either the cathedral in Edmonton or the one in Toronto. But uh, this year, because of the um, reconstruction of our cathedral, I've uh, it's had the blessed effect that I've been able to go around the diocese and different parishes uh, doing Lectio Divina. Uh, before we begin, I'll just uh, say a little bit about it. This is a very ancient form of prayer. Uh, and Lectio Divina literally means divine reading. And from the very earliest times, the Christians have been reading the Word of God. Now, sometimes we read the Word of God, the most important way, is at Mass, when we proclaim the Word of God, especially the Holy Gospel. We stand for the Word of God, for the Lord's Word in the Gospel. And uh, we meditate upon it. But the weakness or the struggle with that is, the challenge, is that at Mass we hear it quickly and then it's over and then we're on to the next reading and the next one. And sometimes it's hard to enter deeply enough into it because it's moving forward so quickly. A great benefit, of course, is that's where the Bible was meant to be, in the heart of God's people here in the celebration especially of the Eucharist. Another way of praying or reading the Word of God is to study and um, ex called exegesis or drawing the meaning out of the text. Now this is important too, uh, because the Word of God, the sacred scriptures, as the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us in our Lord Jesus Christ about 2000 years ago, so the Word of God became flesh and language and dwells amongst us in the sacred scriptures. This is an image that Pope Pius XII used in his great letter about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in 1943. The word becomes flesh in language, in the words of sacred scripture. In the books of the Bible, the inspired writers were written over many, many hundreds and hundreds of years in a land far away, in Hebrew and Greek languages we don't know, in cultures, they were clothed in cultures with which we are to some degree unfamiliar, and in forms of writing that are sometimes difficult to understand. And so for that reason, because they were written so long ago and far away and, and all of that, it's helpful to us to have the study of sacred scripture, to understand it more fully, so that we might more fully be influenced by the Lord as we read the sacred scriptures. But this Lectio Divina is not study of scripture. It's not a scripture lesson. I've done that a lot in my life. Uh, my bishop sent me away to Rome and I spent five years, uh, three years at the Biblical Institute and two at the Gregorian University studying scripture and many, many years teaching scripture. But that's not what this is. That's important, but that's not what this is. And sometimes we might just simply read the Bible from cover to cover. Just read a continuous reading of scripture. But it's better sometimes just to chew on meditate on, reflect on, just a very small passage, and to do so with the spirit of prayer. And that's what Lectio Divina is. Normally, it is done actually in private. Um, in the early traditions of the monks and the rule of Benedict and many other rules for monks, and for many of the Christians in their daily life, they would simply be in their place, wherever they would be, and they just pray over a small portion of scripture, meditate upon it, and the great word which we can say from the Old Testament about Lectio Divina is, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We want to listen to the word of God. Let us speak to our hearts. The great early writer, Origen, one of our great spiritual writers in the early centuries, said, pray that the Lord might make a pathway to our hearts. So often we have sins that burden us, that block the passage of the Lord. As he comes to us, we do not hear him. We block his entry by our sins, by our hardness of heart, or even just by our busyness, our routine, the ways in which we do not listen to the Lord, just as very often we don't listen to one another. So we need to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, like young Samuel in the Old Testament. I think very often our prayer is, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. But that's getting it backwards, and that's not the spirit. So. This divine reading, this tradition of praying a little portion of the sacred scriptures is saying, help me, Lord, to understand it. This is done in different ways. Uh, the Benedictines, the monks do it one way. Uh, Ignatius Loyola treasured the practice. He has a very dynamic, imaginative way of doing it. All kinds, there's no 
kind of copyrighted way of doing it. And I can assure you the way I do it is totally just, it's just in the tradition, but it's, it's nothing, um, you know, sacred about my particular way of doing it. And what I'm doing here is in a, in a community, in the, the whole church, doing it publicly, even with television and all that. Um, I think that's helpful. I find it helpful in my own spiritual life to be doing this. Uh, but really, it's the hope is that on the days when you're not in church uh, at a Lectio Divina or when you're not watching it on television, because this is a kind of prayer that can easily be done through television, that, um, that we're doing it on our own. Just try to do something, uh, just take a Bible, just have a little Bible. I always try to, I have a little red Bible because I think the Bible should be read. So I have a red Bible here. Uh, it's falling apart a bit, which I suppose is a good sign, isn't it there? I hope so. Um, but uh, we just, uh, to do this and follow this. So what the, the way it works is this, at least this is one way of doing it. We'll do it tonight. First, a little prayer. Just like going on to the 401, you know, you need a ramp to get onto the superhighway. You need a little slowdown from our, to speed up, get rid into that. So we'll have a little quiet prayer time. And let go of all those things which block us from letting the Lord enter our hearts. Our sins, our preoccupations, our worries, things like that. Then I will read the whole passage from start to finish. And you have a copy of it here. I find this is a bit easier because it's bigger print than my little Bible, and especially with the lights. Um, so we'll read that little passage. I've chosen different passages over these last 15, 16 years. I usually do this every month except July and August, so 10. So I've done the 10 commandments, not just the commandments, but passages illustrating them. 10 parables, 10 psalms, 10, I did one five sections from uh, the, uh, the letter, broke up the letter of James and some other things. Um, the first year in Toronto, I did the Sermon on the Mount, broken up into 10 sections, usually about 10 to 15 verses. So we're gonna, what, this is the second last session of Lectio Divina over three years that I've been praying the whole of the Gospel of Mark. This wonderful Gospel, this dramatic, you know, the Gospel of Matthew gives the teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, especially in this year which our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has dedicated to mercy in the Gospel of Luke because we see the warmth of the encounter with Jesus. And the Gospel of John, the symbol of the eagle, soaring high, the majesty. But the Gospel of Mark is very down to earth, short and sweet. Begins with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, period. There we are, boom, boom, boom. It's just one thing after another, the, the, the facts, just the facts. And it, it gives us a sort of hard-hitting, basic message of the encounter with Christ our Lord. And so that's, uh, we will have the portion, and actually, even though this is an Easter season, since we're the second last section of the Gospel of Mark, actually today is the crucifixion. Well, it's just the way we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It's not chosen by the season, by just the portion. And so we'll have, I'll read it through, then I'll read a sentence, read it again, Maybe just think about it a bit, a little silent time. I'll throw in a few comments, whatever comes to mind. I hope it's helpful. And then a little silence and we can think of what does it say to my head, to my heart, to my hands? To know, to love, to serve. What does it teach me about knowing the Lord? What does it teach me about loving the Lord? What does it practically say to me in my own life about serving the Lord? Head, heart, and hands. So we just think of this verse, then I'll read another verse, a little silence, a few thoughts I'll throw in, then another verse, and so I'll go right through the passage. Then I'll read the whole of it again, and then we'll say the Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be, sign of the cross, and that's it. It's very simple. Just encounter a prayer, praying the word of God. So let's now enter into divine reading, Lectio Divina. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us so we may hear and be attentive to your Holy Word, that we may come to know and love our Lord Jesus, especially through his sacrifice on the cross. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Let's turn away from all those things in our hearts to block the Lord. Pride, anger, envy, greed, laziness, lust, gluttony, 
all these things that stand in the way. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let all the worries, cares that distract us so that we do not pay attention to one another or to the Lord, let's just put them aside for this time of prayer. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests mocked him to one another with the scribes saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him, and also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. And he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose, saw where he was laid. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Our Lord would be carrying the cross beam, the condemned criminals, the stake was at the place of execution. And the criminal who was to be condemned would carry the, the beam upon his shoulders. But our Lord had been so tortured, suffered so much that it may well have been he could not carry the weight of that. So vulnerable he is. This is almighty God, who did not, he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, taking our own life even to death, death on a cross. 
which was a shameful way of dying in those days, he went to the, the absolute experience of being with those who were most rejected. And he was so weak, he could not even carry the cross. But Simon of Cyrene was brought in to, to help him. This is not the image of God, which we sometimes see in some people's imagination. God so powerful, so distant, in icy splendor. But God comes to be with us like a little babe at Bethlehem. And then walking and talking with us in the streets of Galilee. And now as he is suffering, as the most vulnerable suffer, he is too weak to even carry the cross any further. That should make us reflect upon the profound reality of our gentle and merciful Lord, King of the universe, Christ the King, our Lord and our God, who yet comes to us, always close to us, to share experience with us, whatever they may be, our greatest struggles, whatever they may be. Each one of us has in different ways, some a lot more than others, a heavy beam to carry our own cross. Christ is there, Christ is with us, not far away but near at hand. And yet the one who's close to us is our Lord and God. He invites us, he lives with us, he accompanies us, he shares with us the worst that we can experience, so much so that he himself experienced what it's like not to be able to continue any further. How many times have we felt that in our own life? And we know the Lord knows that. When we see him at the end of our life, we won't be able to say to him, you are almighty God, you don't know what it's like. But he does. And we need to think about that. How does that affect us? The frailty of Almighty God amongst us, our Lord Jesus. Let's just reflect on that and recognize he's close to us in our struggles, whatever they may be, whatever we feel too weak to continue. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They seem to know who Alexander and Rufus were. And there is a Rufus referred to in the letter to the Romans, which seems to be probably the Gospel of Mark by all the ancient tradition is from Rome. It's, he was getting this from Peter largely. In a sense, we could call it the Gospel of Peter. So it seems that they knew Alexander and Rufus. And they may have known Simon too. Who knows the effect of this in his life? when he was just dragged out from his daily, he was going on his routine, coming in from the country, there he went, Simon on his own business, and he was taken out of that by the Roman soldiers, thrown into the midst of the crucifixion. <laughs> it's not where he wanted to be, and forced to carry the cross, because even our Lord himself, he needs help. How often is it for us difficult to take accept help. And yet our Lord receives help from Simon of Cyrene. We should think of Simon. Sometimes we find the deepest experiences of life not where we seek them, but where we're cast into them by forces or people beyond our power. A bunch of Roman soldiers changed the life of Simon of Cyrene. And if his sons were known to the Christians of Rome, Maybe, who knows, this is speculation. We don't know more about Simon of Cyrene. Maybe this experience of encountering Christ changed his heart too. And who knows the faith that came into him unexpectedly that day when he was forced to go get out of his own routine and encounter the experience that changed his life. How open are we? We don't know how open he was to that. Maybe he was. If Alexander and Rufus were Christians, maybe Simon became one too. We don't know. But how open are we when we're taken out of our own routines and forced to do things that we may find to be, we may resent 
You can imagine Simon coming in from the country, resenting being grabbed by the Roman soldiers and thrown into the midst of a crucifixion. This was not, I'm sure, what he planned for that day. I don't think it was on his to-do list to be doing this. And yet sometimes the things we do not plan, <laughs> the things that in God's providence we encounter are the things that change our lives. If only we will not resent them and be irritated at them, but simply see where is God's providence in this. So let's put ourselves in the footsteps of Simon, the reluctant saint maybe, who had such a central role simply because a bunch of Roman soldiers grabbed him out of the crowd. Let's just think about that and ask how we deal with that in our own lives. Those experiences that come upon us uninvited and resented. And how have we been changed by them? If only we will be disposed to see in them the hand of our provident God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Around nine in the morning, they take him to the cross. They bring him to the place called Golgotha, taking he who is infinite in power, allows himself to experience this. And we think of this, just this last Sunday, we heard of, of Peter who told, you will go to a place you do not wish to go. They bring him to this place, the place of the skull. And they offer him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. As he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he will drink the cup fully and not be drugged and not be taken away from that. And they crucified him in the most horrendous, suffering. All our crucifixes tend to make it so common. We, every room a crucifix, so much they're invisible. We see them so often we don't see them at all. We see the crucifixes of suffering that come from later in our spiritual tradition, around the time of St. Francis of Assisi, and they're based largely on the spirit of the Gospel of Mark, the suffering of Christ, the pain of the Lord. And that's very appropriate because this is Christ coming into our world and we think of so many people who are facing so much, maybe physical, maybe spiritual, mental, psychological, so much suffering where they're gnarled in pain of different kinds. And Christ is on the cross with each of us. And there's another tradition, but not of the Gospel of Mark. An earlier one, actually, in, in our artistic tradition, based more on the Gospel of John, where we see the majesty of Christ. Instead of hanging like this on the cross, as our more common crosses, straight like this with the crown and the robes of a priest on the cross. That's not what it looked like. Mark is more accurate, historically. But that is what it was. Christ in glory upon the cross. And which is real, the victorious Christ in glory with the crown or the suffering Christ? The answer to that question is yes. The only Christ crucifix that I, I don't, don't think really, uh, I don't think really fits anywhere in that tradition is where 
our Lord seems to be leaping off the cross, which some seem to indicate that, but it's the suffering or the glory. And here we have in Mark, above all, the earliest of the Gospels. Later they would meditate upon what it meant. Here we have the suffering. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. He's going to go straight into it. He's going to drink the cup of suffering straight there. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take. This is a passage in the scriptures, the Old Testament, of how they divide my garments among them. This is where we see the humiliation of Christ as well, stripped of his garments, mocked as we see later. There are other ways of hurting a person than physical, and our Lord experienced them all. So we should think of that when we relate to other people and reflect upon our Lord's suffering when we experience whatever it may be, the various crosses we bear, which are relatively so slight. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. This is what the Romans saw. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It was a political side to it. But he is indeed Christ the king, the king of the universe. And so without intending it, Pontius Pilate saw something, expressed something. And sometimes out of strange and unpromising sources, we find an element of truth. That he who is condemned as being a political agitator, claiming to be the king of the Jews. And remember in another gospel it says, he said he was. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. He indeed is the king, he is Christ the Lord. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And they don't have here what we hear elsewhere about the good thief and the promise, the one canonization we know, the very first, this day you will be with me in paradise. Mark just stresses the two rebellious robbers who also revile him. There he is, undignified, tortured in the company of criminals. We find almighty God. That is what we need to reflect on. As on the cross, so in our lives, no matter how we may be, he shares humiliation, he shares the shame, he enters into the pain, he is close to us and near to us, and not just our friend, but our Lord and our God. And Christ in majesty has wounds in his glorified body. And in the book of Revelation, which speaks of the glory of heaven, the lamb who is slain is upon the throne. That's what gives meaning to our lives, that we contemplate our Lord in glory, but not distant glory, the glory that's come near to us on the cross. This is why the cross is our symbol, the cross of glory, the cross of suffering, the cross of Christ. That's always our sign. By the cross of Christ, we carry it in possession. We have it as a sign that we reflect on. It is at the heart of our life.
May we not only pray with the sign of the cross, but may we live by the sign of the cross in accord with our experience of our risen Lord, crucified and in glory. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests mocked him to one another with the scribes saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So not only the physical pain and the humiliation, but the mockery of people mocking our blessed Lord. He saved himself. Let him save himself, he saved others. Let him, he cannot save himself. And yet in not saving himself with a, a shallow exercise of his divine power by just blowing away the Roman soldiers and snapping his fingers and <laughs> he never goes that way. He always experiences the depth. He never does that, he never uses his power. But in not saving himself in a tricky and superficial and powerful way, but by experiencing drinking the cup to the dregs, by remaining on the cross, not coming off the cross, he does indeed save others, more than he ever did before. He experienced, he is there taking the hatred, taking that, and what we would do would be throw it back at them. They, you mock me, I'll mock you. You yell at me, I'll yell at you. That's the way we always operate. Yet he transforms that hatred that's pouring towards him and it's purified. And we know what he says, that Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. A tremendous purification. And we see that in the modern martyrs, in the holy Coptic young men on the beach, those 21 saints, praying for the coming of the Lord and in charity and holiness. We see that in the missionaries of charity, martyred just a short time ago in Yemen. And there are all of their, their, uh, those who are helping them, helping them to serve. I remember reading the, an account of what had happened and it was filled with love the love of Christ, not bitterness. That's what triumphs over evil. It's the mystery of the cross. And we have to think about that as we deal with great evil in our own country. We must never be tempted, well, we are always tempted. We must never give in to the temptation to fight evil with hatred or bitterness but always to say the cross of Christ. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. We must keep it before us. And sometimes it's religious people, we can get really bitter, you know? Just look at some of the blogs and the, the com boxes, these comments, people, slash, slash, you know? I mean, where charity and love prevail, you know. Let strife among us be unknown. Let all contention cease. Be Christ the glory that we seek. Be ours his holy peace. Draw us the nearer each to each we pray by drawing all to thee, O Prince of Peace. So we gotta not just read this, we gotta think about this and pray about it and act on it and not be like the people mocking him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he cries it out, not in the Hebrew of the sacred text, but in Aramaic, in the common language. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line of Psalm 22. And if we had time, I would now pray. I actually have my Psalms here too, to pray the whole of Psalm 22, but I think that would be the rest of this Lectio Divina. But I, I, I recommend to you, go back home and read the whole of Psalm 22. The one that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it, it goes back and forth with pain and suffering and the need for God and then a tremendous rejoicing in the presence of God in the midst of our suffering. Then back down, I am a worm, no man. The bulls of Bashan close in. These big, surrounded by enemies. You know, when we feel surrounded, all of that, that's all in Psalm 22. And when he was praying the first line, he meant the whole thing. You know, we, we say, our Father, we know what the rest of the prayer said. So we need to read the whole of Psalm 22. And it, it goes from, it goes back and forth, from the pain of suffering to the glory of the Lord. And it ends off with, it's a, this beautiful praise of the majesty of the Heavenly Father and the way he comes to the aid of those who call. And it ends off with the words, these things the Lord has done. So it begins with agony, it ends with triumph, with the cross to resurrection. The whole Paschal mystery is there in that beautiful song. And so it's good for us when we're hearing those words as we do every year in Holy Week when we read the Passion, when we read it here, to go deeper into that, to see the, the trust in the midst of pain. But we also need to think more fully about this. God came to us so much. We can see, you know, in the Philippians hymn and in chapter 2, 6 to 11, I think it is in Philippians, where you know, he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, taking our human life, even death, death on the cross. And we can see some things that we can experience that God came into this. He, we sometimes we're facing physical pain, and he was there. He's here, right there, in that physical pain. Sometimes we face humiliation and embarrassment, and he's there. And sometimes we face mockery from other people. Ha ha, save yourself, you know, you. And he's there. He's experienced that. But sometimes, we experience in our life, God, what are you doing? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's even there. God is there too, to with us, be with us in our moments of greatest abandonment. He is there with us too. Think of, you know, when people reach the bottom, whatever it may be, and cry out from their life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever it may be, perhaps it is some great suffering, perhaps it is a great sickness, perhaps it is a terrible experience in their life, some rejection by a friend or, or a breakup of a relationship or failure, or it's different for each of us. And we may be tempted to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know almighty God is with us there too. That's amazing. It's just amazing. We should think about that. And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And one ran and filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. They hear Elijah, Eli, Eloi, Elijah. We know where Elijah who came and brought forth in chariots of fire. We know Elijah. We see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We hear that at the voice of God in the, in the Jordan River. This is the son of God. This is my beloved son and the transfiguration. And now it's not the voice of God saying that, it's the centurion, the one in charge of the execution is saying, this is the son of God. It's coming out of the mouth of the one who arranged the death, who was killing him. Think about that, that's amazing. It's just awesome. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's gone. No more curtain. In the curtain of the front part of the temple, there were two of them. The, the one, we don't know which one it was, but the one on the front we hear from another ancient writer had scenes of the universe on it, heaven and earth and seas and all that, which itself is a profound thought. That's gone. Now the, day, the gateway is open. The old has passed away. The heavenly city is coming down. Jerusalem, the temple, which has no temple, for the Lamb is at the center of the heavenly Jerusalem, the Lamb upon his throne. All that is old is gone. And even the pagan executioner says, this is the Son of God. And that is so true down through history. Many a pagan executioner has seen the martyrdom of Christians and has become himself a Christian. In fact, that's the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So many in Elizabethan England, the, the blood of Edmund Campion fell upon an aristocrat's arm and he himself was converted and himself became a martyr. And so down through the ages, we cannot take, we must not take the superficial path. We must not become caught up in vengeance or shallowness in dealing with the evils of this world. Although the temptation to short circuit the crucifixion is always there. But we as Christians must meditate upon the cross of Christ and in that find the wisdom that guides us in everything we say and do. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joses and Salome, who when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him. And also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We see the role that women play in the ministry of Jesus, which we hear about earlier in the gospel, but also there at the cross. And of course, not mentioned here, but more in the Gospel of John, we see our, mother, our Blessed Mother, Mary, and also the beloved disciple. But here we stress, at the beginning we have the unwilling helper, Simon, who just grabbed out of nowhere. And here we have, however, the faithful women at the foot of the cross, who had been with him in this, they were with him in the days of Galilee when he was being cheered, and they're with him here when he is on the cross. They do not desert him. Unlike the apostles, except the beloved disciple, they don't run away. It's interesting, there's that remarkable thing about the young man who ran away. 
It's such a strange thing at the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane that we hear about a bit earlier. Some think that might have been Mark, because who else would know? So even Mark ran away, if that's true. But they didn't. That steady presence is an inspiration to us all to be there. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. And he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So here we now have Joseph of Arimathea. We have the faithful women who are disciples of the Lord for many years and now at the crucifixion. We have the unwilling helper, Simon of Cyrene. And now we have a high-ranking, wealthy, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council. He really was taking a risk of a different kind. He was a powerful, influential, prominent man. To be showing up at the governor's office asking for the body of this man who had been crucified, which is the the punishment of slaves, this, this took a certain courage too. Courage comes in different forms, so does holiness. And it comes in people we don't always expect. I bet some of the apostles would be a little bit nervous about Joseph of Arimathea, and he'd probably be nervous about some of them. They're different social classes, different roles, all of them touched by Jesus. Christ was on the cross and he touched everyone. He changed them. And so this aristocrat or this respected member of the council and the faithful women place Jesus in the tomb and roll the stone across it. And they know it is there. This is an important point too because the fact of the resurrection, which is the final portion, which next month will form the last portion of this Lecture Divina, the last portion of the Gospel of Mark. The resurrection is a fact in history that transforms each one of us. It is Jesus as Lord. And that is where we find our faith. With the Lord who is risen as wounds upon him, and experience physical pain, humiliation, rejection by so many of his friends, mockery, all those things. Christ is on the cross and he's with us. And all our crosses, so tiny as they are compared to this. So we should think about that and let it change our lives as it has changed the lives of countless disciples and not be satisfied with a shallow life, a life where we simply forget the presence of the crucifix as we see it all the time, become so routine as to be invisible. Let the cross of Christ never be routine in our hearts, in our lives. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests mocked him to one another with the scribes saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And one ran and filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then the, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome, who when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him and also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. And he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.